And so we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24 today, as we continue in our series, This Is Your Life. I think it's a, an appropriate time today to remind ourselves of something that appears almost too simple to mention. In fact, I almost hesitate saying it, but here it goes anyway. In this letter, the Apostle Paul was writing to the people in the ancient city of Ephesus. What a genius your minister is, you say, as you study the letter to the Ephesians. Now, I'm not going to break any new ground with that statement today, but what I am wanting to do is focus upon that fact. For this writing isn't some vague piece of ancient correspondence, but it's a personal letter written with these particular people in mind. For Paul had spent three years in Ephesus, we read in Acts chapter 19, and over that time he would have grown to know the city streets and what made that particular people tick. He would have been there in holiday times, watching the actors and the new productions come and go from the very impressive 25,000 seater theater, or caught sight of the merchant ships docking the inland harbor. On any regular day, he would observe all the local business customs and legal transactions taking place in what were called the agoras, the marketplaces, dotted around the city. Paul would have walked past the very pleasant colonnades, which housed the hundreds of upmarket shops dealing in high-end fashion that were the envy of the Roman Empire. Paul would also have been uh, not unfamiliar with friends and their conversations, saying they were going to meet up for a pomegranate smoothie after their workout in the local gymnasium or a day at the spa. Those things were commonplace to the Ephesians. Or in another day, sharing thoughts on the local games played in the stadium or the artwork displayed in the gallery, or even the hope of upgrading their chariot to an SUV. But the most regular feature of this thriving city was the sound of metalwork. The constant pinging and hammering and grinding and chiming of tools on silver, making coins and charms and replicas and keepsakes, all with the imprint or the picture of the goddess Diana upon them, also known as the goddess Artemis. And the, the trade union of silversmiths was the most powerful group in Ephesus behind the Roman garrison. And those priests and priestesses who maintained the temple of the goddess Artemis, which was this mega structure that dominated the Ephesian skyline, all built around this one piece of stone that was said to have fallen from the heavens that depicted the great goddess of the Ephesians. And that is why when Paul came preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, declaring the good news of God who came down from heaven to save us, not as a stone to be worshipped, but as a sacrifice for sinners. And as seals of this little goddess Diana plummeted, the business community, the trade union of silversmiths, were in uproar. Whether news of this Jesus was true or not was irrelevant to them. The facts didn't matter because this was hitting their finances. It was impacting their work, changing the society they loved, in fact, questioning their very lives and existence. And there we have it, in just a few words, a summary of all that Paul is driving at in these verses today that we're focusing on in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. A question that all of us need to answer 
If the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, as already explained in Ephesians so far, that despite us being dead in sin and deserving God's wrath, this God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ. If this good news really is true, how does it change our lives? How does it impact upon our work and the society and the homes that we live in? For just like the Ephesians, the society we live in around Mid-Ulster prizes the fashionable and shopping and gymnasiums and looking smart and staying physically fit and entertainment and eating out and most of all our deeply held traditional cultural religious convictions. But what if, what if faith in Christ asked us to leave some of that behind? What if Ephesians 4, verse 17 read, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the rest of Mid-Ulster lives in the futility of its thinking. Other versions put it like this. The message version puts it like this. And so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there is to be no going along with the crowd. Or the New King James Version says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So this is a call from Paul to mind your head. Mind your head. And that's our focus today in verses 17 to 19. Mind your head. My dad was quite a bit taller than me. He was a few inches taller than me. And he had a lot less hair than me. Although he desperately tried to hide it with what we called a a curly comb-over. He was well over six feet tall. And that had its advantages, of course. But it also had many drawbacks. Especially the fact that our garage door at our home only opened to around six feet. Inevitably, around once a month, my dad would catch his head on the top of the garage door and his scalp would open and bleed. There just wasn't enough of that comb over hair to protect his head. He didn't mind his head. And over time, on that same spot where he used to catch it and it used to open up and heal over, it became hardened skin and actually quite unsightly over time. In a physical sense, he wasn't as careful as he should be And he just got used to banging it that the cuts in the hard skin were inevitable. And it's the same for the Ephesian society, but much more in a spiritual sense. These verses, verses 17 to 19 or 20, remind us how important our thinking is. Follow down these verses with me to see how important thinking was to Paul and us in our Christian lives. Verse 17, it says, the futility of thinking leads to verse 19, darkened understanding, all they were thinking again, resulting in being, verse 18, separated from God due to ignorance. And that's ignorance due to, to, to what we know. Seen in a hardening of hearts and a loss of sensitivity. And Paul's warning to the church in Ephesus is stark. He says, friends in Ephesus, don't go back there. In other words, he says, or puts it like this. Ephesians, he says, Ephesian church, don't live like the Ephesians. Northern Irish church, 
Don't live like everyone else in Northern Ireland. Don't fall back on the culturally expected patterns. Don't walk the same way. Think about it. Work it through. Don't get caught up with the same silly things that your society, that your community gets caught up with. Because many of those things result in just having a worthless, a worthless mindset. That's our first point in this. Worthless. That word worthless is probably most famous in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 describes the way of life without any meaningful connection with God. It says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. The kind of thinking, thinking that, well, just doesn't think. And that's the problem. It's a mind happy to be filled with entertainment and a bit of crack and don't take things too seriously come to church just to see the friends and have a bit of social interaction, but shutting out anything significant that's been said. Some might describe it these days as amusing ourselves to death, amusing ourselves to death, our heads filled with song lyrics and storylines from the soaps and sports scores and gossips and Hello Magazine tittle-tattle and style magazines and competitions that have been entered and one appointment after the other, keeping up with the neighboring farm, upgrading your phone, whatever makes us feel better about ourselves, but never allows us to actually stop and think about ourselves. In fact, there's an incredible industry built up around grass, isn't there? I mean, these sunny months during lockdown, I think I've had more time to observe people and their grass. Everyone from farmers and their fields and their silage to gardeners and their back lawn, grass is something of an obsession in these parts. And the bigger the field, the harder the job, the more challenging the work and the more impressive the machinery. There's always a great relief. I've heard so many farmers say over these months of getting the first cut done. But what's the life story with grass? Well, you all know the story of grass, don't you? Sowing, growing, mowing, blowing, gone. That's the picture of a futile thinker. Someone who just gives their minds to TikTok dances online. One-off feel-good events, building their whole life around their next social engagement, whether sport or leisure, entertainment or indulging in our own treasures, whether that be everything from pipe bands to knitting to shopping for shoes or getting mightier, stronger machinery, whatever it is, we all know our own obsessions. We all know what tickles us. If that's where it begins and ends, we're all grass men. Growing one minute, blowing with the wind the next, but not long before we go, and so will our treasures. Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, puts it like this. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely people are all like grass. And I say this with a very special focus to our teens and our 20s or any of us who cannot do a simple task without our phone being glued to the end of our fingers. Many of us have forgotten how to think for ourselves and that's really worrying. We click and we share and we like and we post without much thought. We watch and we comment without thinking. If we don't know something, we ask Alexa 
or call Siri or type into Google, and there's less and less self-reflection, never mind biblical or God-based consideration. If others like something, we end up liking it too. If a video is popular, we watch it as well. If a message is sent to us, we LOL alongside the rest. And for those in their 70s to 90s who are watching this today or listening on CD, God has already given you more life than was promised. You're in added time. So let me ask, how is your life with God? Where do your thoughts go each day? What is the obsession of your hearts? Is God in it at all? How does he feature in your day today? For all of us, life without God thought makes us grass men. And if we fill our lives with frivolous, vacuous, meaningless things that have no lasting value, we end up not just living worthless lives, but this passage goes on to tell us, verse 18, we end up living in darkness. We end up living in darkness. I mean, imagine trying to live, physically speaking, in a house with no lights. Or imagine being blind or partially sighted. There's that increased risk of falling, of being injured, of fumbling and feeling our way around in the dark, being mistaken as we pick something up, confusing one thing for another, or even one voice for another. We could easily be fooled or deceived because we cannot see clearly. Living in the dark is dangerous because our true perception is gone. There's a lack of true understanding as to what's going on round about us. And why is that? Because we simply can't see. And so Paul warns the Ephesian Christians not to go walking back down the dark hole, especially as the light of God's truth has already been switched on. Because remember what he's prayed for them. He's already prayed in Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to see the hope and the inheritance that is already ours. Oh, it would be crazy to turn off the lights when the room has already been brightened and the treasures of God's riches are already there. That's Paul's stern warning to the church in Ephesus. Don't go back. Christians, don't go back to the dark places, the black hole of sin, those things, those feelings, those needs, those desires that you had addicted you for years, luring you back again with all their false hopes and false pretenses that it will be all right. But these are the places, the sins, the darkness that separates us. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Oh, you know, it's like taking a beautiful plant that's flourishing out there in the summer sunshine in the flower bed, and then you dig it up, and you just dump it behind closed doors in the shed again. Not connected to the life of the sunlight, of the rain, of the roots dying in the darkness. It'll shrivel. It'll die. I wonder, is that you today? 
You see, Paul has spent three chapters describing for us the wonderful life of God and the soul of man, the dimensions of Christ's love, the new family that he's formed around about them, the heavenly inheritance that's ours to enjoy, the incomparable riches of his grace. And he asks, why would you throw all that away? Why would you dig yourself out and put your way in the darkness? Why on earth would you choose darkness over light? And the answer is it all started slowly almost imperceptibly with our first point the worthlessness of the stuff that we got involved in it begins with us giving ourselves unthinkingly to the meaningless things the so-called harmless things but it's not long before then we're engulfed in the darkness again friends mind your head mind your head Whatever you give your thoughts to, your mind over to, whatever spend time YouTubing or watching, whatever voices in the culture that we listen to, it might start as harmless and fun and easy and relaxed, but it leads us to the darkness. And the downward spiral does not end there as this leads to a life of ignorance, a hardening of our hearts which leads to an abandonment of sensitivity. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Paul warns them from this worthlessness and darkness that leads to recklessness. Recklessness. Romans chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 capture this well. Paul writes there, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you pick up on what's going on? In Romans chapter 1, people know that God exists. You're sitting at home today and you think, yeah, I believe that. He made us, cares for us, provides for us. His power is seen in creation round about us and history and salvation and Christ on the cross for us. But we choose to say no to him. And so then we give ourselves not to the creator and savior, but we give ourselves over to the created things. You know, it's a poor illustration, but it's like ordering a 70-inch 4K UHD smart TV with Dolby Vision for a little under 700 pounds from Amazon. And the day it arrives... You end up marveling at the bubble wrap, polystyrene and brown packaging that encased it, rather than plugging the thing in. What a waste. That Amazon order was not for you to worship the box, but to enjoy the sights and the sounds that come on to that HD TV. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, is a running commentary on this. At home, please lift for a Bible, reach for a Bible, and turn with me to Psalm 115, verse 4. Psalm 115, verse 4. Where the psalmist writes, But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses that cannot smell, 
hands that cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. But here's the punchline, friends. Verse 8. Those who make them will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. Boy, that hits us where it hurts, doesn't it? If you replace God in any area of your life, you will lose the capacity to see and hear and walk in God's ways. If you put anything in the place of God, it will result in the reduced capacity of our thinking and will shrivel our souls. And friends in La Comfort and Union Road and others here watching I know today, I know this for an absolute fact, for I see it and I hear it all around me and even in our church family, that some of us have become utterly reckless in our faith and swapped the goodness and grace of our God for the benefits and all our focuses on the comfortable home, having a nice family, giving them a good education with a decent couple of cars out the front and no major worries in life? Or is it the desire for these things that I've listed that drives our moods and makes us swing how we feel? If we have them, we are happy. And if we don't, well, then we're dying. Our idols are clear for all of us looking on to see in one another's lives. For some of us, even watching today, our idol is Union Road or La Comfort Church and religious tradition and how things have always been. And what do idols demand? What has every idol in the history of idols demanded? Well, idols always demand sacrifices. And so we end up sacrificing our lives, our time, our energy, our thoughts, our thinking, and we give it over entirely to that thing that's become our idol, to our family, to improve our position, to, to better ourselves for the future, or always, maybe we're always thinking about the past. And so we sacrifice all our thinking to the past and the what-haves and the might-have-beens. The glory of the God who defeats sin and death and hell and hung on the cross is forgotten because we sacrifice to the idols of our own lives. The sights and sounds of his glory are shut up in that box when the four dimensions of his love are there to be enjoyed. Folks, so many of us have exchanged the glory of God. And Romans 1 tells us that makes us fools. The Bible is littered with stories of those who once walked that way, who fell away. If you want to read it later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul writes in his very last letter about the great disappointment of his fellow worker, Demas, who we read there, loved this world so much that he deserted the Christian cause. He made a shipwreck of his faith. He was reckless. And it all started because he ended up giving himself to worthless things. How we need the warning to avoid recklessness and the demon's nature in our lives by ignoring God and his word. Because if we continue to ignore God and his word, it leads us lastly to callousness and hardness. The word callous just means to be hardened. And the idea behind this turn of phrase is a medical one. It's like the, the skin on my dad's head that I told you about earlier. It hardened over time because it had been opened up so much, almost to the extent when he knocked it again, he hardly felt it. 
Or let me switch parents for a moment when my mum used to tell me about the awful plight of the leprosy patients that she, she nursed in Nigeria, the, the nature of that horrible disease of leprosy that wears away at nerve endings and makes them less sensitive to pain. So if a leprosy sufferer spilt a, a kettle of boiling water over her leg, she wouldn't feel it because the nerve damage is done. But now further damage of the burn is there, but they just don't feel it. Or if a man stood in a rusted nail on his leprous foot, he failed to feel it because of the disease. But as a result, the leg would then become even more infected. You see, this dulling of perception, this hardening, this wearing away of sensitivity, this hardening of hearts comes all too easily because over time we become so self-obsessed. The things we watch in TV that used to appall us when we were younger in our Christian faith, well, now we just watch it, and well, that's entertainment, and well, that's how society is now. Or the relationships that we know to be unhealthy and ungodly, even within our families, well, we just accept it because, well, that's the way things are in society. Or the deep needs of others that don't move us as much as they did. To be honest, we don't care about that struggling church down in Enniscorthy as much as we should. We've never even shed a tear over the Akdam people in the Yemen. Why should we care about these people who live so far away? You see, the hurts of others don't move us anymore because we've been so callous to the beautiful sign of the gospel in our lives. We have become lepers to the love of Jesus. We have lost the feeling in our hearts. We have become bitter towards the beauty of Christ and his cross. We've become dead to his touch and deaf to his voice. We're no longer moved by what our heavenly Father has done by sending his Son into the sin-scarred world for us. And as Ephesians 4 verse 19 goes on to describe, we have given ourselves over to our own desires, our own sensualities, and it becomes all about me, and we forget about anyone or anything else. I think it's fascinating where the Ten Commandments begin and end, numbers 1 to 10. How does it begin? Well, the Ten Commandments begin with a reminder that God is the God of rescue. He's the one who saved them in dramatic fashion. Read Exodus chapter 20, the first two verses again, and you'll see that he reminds them, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I freed you from slavery. I have loved you so much. I have rescued you so dramatically. And then he tells them, after saving them, this is now how you're to live. So grace comes first before obedience. But what is commandment number one? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And at that point, we should think, hey, well, what other God do we need? We've got a God who just has gone in there and obliterated Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he's taken us to the land that flows of milk and honey. We're getting a land of our own, and he's providing us all that we need. Why do we need any other gods? We know this God who saves. But track the Israelites walking through the wilderness and they forgot all about the God, he says. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But by the end of the commandments, commandment number 10, we read, you shall not covet. You see, covetousness is that sinful want for more. 
These commandments were not just thrown down numbers 1 to 10 by chance. They hold all of God's law together. Number 1 and number 10 are like the bookends. It's like the staples that hold the binding that holds the commandments together. They're important. Number 1 and number 10 are, if you like, the most important commands. And that's Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 19 for us today. The breaking of God's law and the rejecting of his rule in our lives starts with idolatry and ends with greed. Starts with commandment number one and ends with commandment number ten. It sets aside the salvation and the glory of our God and gets so bound up with our love of ourselves. And that's where so many of us find ourselves today, living worthless lives in the darkness which leads to recklessness and then leads to hardness of heart. And so Paul warns the Christians, don't go back there. Don't go back to those places. And folks, this is a huge challenge to those of us who aren't yet Christians. For Paul says clearly, this is a description of you today. This is a pen portrait of your life. You're living a worthless life because you're without Christ. That'll lead to darkness because you've no light of his love shining within you. It'll lead to a recklessness and a couldn't care lessness and a hardness. And some of you are sitting at home today with very hard hearts. You see, the definition of repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which means a change, not just of heart, but it actually means a change of mind. It's going from self, from sin, looking to the Savior. And you see, living worthless, dark, reckless, and hardened lives, it all starts with our minds. Remember where we started today? Paul writing to his beloved brothers and sisters in Ephesus. He thanks God for them in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He prays for them, and oh, how he has reminded them of the opportunity to be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. And he wants them to grasp those dimensions of Christ's love that we've been going on about over these weeks. He spent three chapters in the heights, lifting our spirits, thrilling our souls of what it means to be in Christ, commending the beauty of God's grace, and even bothering to think, never mind, reach down to save someone like me. So why this? Why then? Why now? Because Paul's been trying to get our attention that there is a higher calling in life. There is a better life worth living. And that's why we go back to where we started, rooting this letter in Ephesus to real people in a particular setting. The people of Ephesus saw the difference that Jesus had made in their homes and in the community. Individuals who had encountered Christ and the gospel were changed forever. Life looked different. There was a spirit of hope and love and purpose and assurance. There was a peace about them. There was a direction in life. They were looking up and around and they were engaging with praise in their hearts and they always were going around with other people in their mind. But for others, despite what they had heard and seen, despite being overwhelmed of the news, not of some fickle goddess called Diana, 
who only blessed you on the farm or in your business, if you brought the right offering to the temple or slept with the right priestess in the temple, that is just a do-it-yourself religion. If I do this for God, then he will do this for me. In fact, it's the way many people in La Comfort and Union Road think they're doing their Christian life. If I do this for God, he'll owe me. But that is not the gospel. Rather, this is the story of a God who became man, who wasn't looking for any sacrifice from us, but has made his life and his body a sacrifice for us as an atonement for sin and shameless self-living, this God came seeking and serving us. What an altogether different God. That's why the gospel is different from every other world religion or everything else in life. But some continue to say no because they know that this will change them, impact their life, their business, their relationships, and they say, I cannot let that happen to me. I can't let the amazing grace save the wretch that I am, for that would mean changing. And I am not into changing. Klein Snodgrass, from whom I've quoted several times over this series, summarizes it best as we finish today. He says, We are caught in an increasing spiral of serving ourselves. Pleasure and enjoyment are not illegitimate. But when they become the focus of life, they distort and corrupt. Life is from God. The text implies that we need life from God. Human beings were never intended to live merely as individuals. We were created for fellowship with God. We are diminished when separated from what is greater than us, God. What we need is not self-expression and self-satisfaction, but self-surrender and self-attachment to God with whom all things are ours to enjoy. Let us not trade life with God for a corrupting, meaningless life with self. Friends, if the good news of Jesus Christ is true, if the gospel is real, if Christ died for sinners, if salvation and heavenly peace and eternal love are accessible, if so, then we must hear the words of Paul, who would say to us today, I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Mid-Ulster does in the futility of its thinking. It's a call today to turn from our stuff and our service and our status and our sin and turn to the Savior. Friends, mind your head.